You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We discussed the latest attacks in Syria on this program, and we heard from a couple of listeners who are native to the Ghouta region. They still have friends and family living in Douma, riding out a civil war in the most desperate of circumstances, with little to no options other than to wait, hope, and pray. One of our callers uh, was one of our callers. Our producer Laura Weber Davis spoke with was Muhammad, a physician who moved to Southeast Michigan after doing his residency in the American South. Muhammad learned about the strong Syrian and Arab American population in Southeast Michigan and was drawn to move here. Now he has the option of returning to Syria, though most of his family is still there. Laura asked Muhammad to come in and share his personal story of growing up in Douma and watching a civil war unfold. For the sake of his safety and that of his family, we agreed not to use Muhammad's last name. Here is his conversation with Laura Weber Davis. Douma is the largest city in the countryside of Damascus. So Damascus is the capital of Syria. Um, and there are rural areas around Damascus. Um, Douma is the largest city in that rural area. So in, in Douma, um, yeah, there's a lot of farms. Um, uh, nature is beautiful. At the same time, there's a decent downtown. Um, so all the smaller towns in the countryside of Damascus would use Douma as their shopping center, if you will. Tell me, is there is there a size of a community here in Metro Detroit that you say is about the same size? Or mm, population-wise, um, before I left was around um, four hundred and fifty thousand. Okay, so quite large. That's Douma and the surrounding areas. So yeah, it is relatively large. I mean, the Syrian population before I left, so that was two thousand and ten, um, was about twenty-two million. And w- was it? Was that community of Duma, was it built around agriculture to start with, but then grew up? It's mainly agriculture, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, a majority of the people there are, I would say, um, their maximum educate, education level would be around middle or high school. Because most people are working on farms. Yes, so either farms or hand-related work. So mm-hmm. um, I guess um, carpenters or they have their own shops or... Um, um, construction builders and, and stuff like that. What are the the primary agricultural focuses? What are the primary crops that are being grown? Um, tomatoes and grapes. We have the best grapes in the area. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then the climate must be um, fairly warm, but somewhat mild all year round. Yeah, and um, because there, so like, so like a, um, it's surrounded by mountains, um, so it's really um, it does get hot and dry. Um, but the winter is not that cold. Um, we have four seasons um, mm-hmm. in, in Duma, and it sometimes snows, and people get so excited when it snows. <laughs> I could stay for like two or three days, unlike here. And now you probably send people back word from here, like, yeah, that's enough snow for now. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, it could get cold. Uh, the lowest I, I remember was minus one uh, Celsius. Yeah, so it does not snow. We have four seasons. Um, um, like I said, summer is really hot and dry, um, but the other seasons are are fine and mild overall. So tell me about your childhood. What you know? What was your childhood like? And had you always been interested in science? Um, not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
my story is a little bit funny, um, I guess. So uh, both my parents are teachers. Um, my dad was, um, he passed away in 2016. Hmm. Wow, time flies so fast. It was 2016 when he passed away. No, I think it's 2015. <laughs> he passed away 2015. So he was um, a uh, physics and chemistry teacher for high school. My mom was just a primary a primary school teacher. Um, so I always wanted to be to be a teacher. Uh, I love teaching. I enjoy teaching. Um, but my parents wanted me to become a physician. Why? Why did they want that for you? There was no, I guess the um, the stereotypes. Not really stereotypes. Um, how people speak highly about physicians right. um, back sure. home. I guess m- most countries are the honorable. Um, exactly. Yeah. And then they wanted a stable income. I guess. Um, teachers, I guess, same like in the U.S. Um, they're financially struggling back back home. Both my parents um, were from the poor um, uh, group of of the population. We're not really from the medium or top one percent. Uh, we I grew up in a, in a, in a poor family, hmm. um, so they wanted, I guess, more of a uh, a career that would provide more stability for me. Well, so and, why what what took them to teaching? Is it were they always attracted to teaching as well? I guess my dad was. Yeah. I'm not sure about my mom. Yeah. <laughs> my mom just wanted to to go to school and and just work and be um, active in the society. So, and and a lot of women in in Duma go to either um, teaching um, or art. So tell me, um, did you before you came to the United States? Did you notice that there were shifts happening politically? No, absolutely not. Um, the opposite. Hmm. We are. We were under fear um, of the government all the time. Um, and nobody was standing up. Absolutely not. You cannot. Um, I remember when I was in in middle in medical school. Um, there's there was an incident. Um, I'll, I'll tell you about it in a minute. But generally speaking, um, it's it's extremely uh, oppressive um, government. You can't even talk uh, about the government or um, criticize the government, even in private places. You don't feel comfortable doing it. Just because um, Assad's dad, so the previous Mm -hmm. president, um, he committed a massacre in a city uh, called Hama, um, H-A-M-A, in the 80s, early 80s, um, in tanks and and aircrafts. And um, he completely destroyed the entire city, one of the largest cities in Syria. And he killed, some people say around 20,000 people over two or three days. Um, there were prisoners, um, innocent people, there were just prisoners, prisoners for 20, 30 years. Nobody knew, knew anything about him. Wow. So he spread fear um, and it's very oppressive. So people won't even think about talking about anything. We had one party, one political party the entire 30 years or so. Um, one source of media, the government media, and that was it. One newspaper, political newspaper. So we only listen to what the government says. We only watch what the government says. It's only one party. You always vote for the same president, and you have to vote for the same president. Um, his son, when Assad's the father died, um, his son Bashar, I think he was 34 maybe 35, 36, I don't remember. The law says that you cannot be a president if you're younger than 40. 
That's what the law is. Mm -hmm. It was changed in five minutes. <laughs> and he became the president. Right. And the next year, uh, when the election, quote-unquote election, um, uh, ran, um, he won by 99%. Right. There was no um, um, competitor uh, against Tell him. Tell me, what is the... What is the discussion that's had uh, among citizens about why the Assads or anyone would attack their own people? Like, is there is there any is there any explanation, even if it seems totally insane, as to why? Because one of the arguments we've heard mm -hmm. throughout the civil war is, well, coming from the Assad regime, mm -hmm. is. You know, they they these are these are specifically our terrorists that are attacking us. And we're not fighting mm -hmm. our own people. We're attacking people who want to spread terror throughout the world. But the understanding from the ground level is, no, these are just people who d aren't necessarily happy with what's happening with mm -hmm. the dictatorship. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, so what is the explanation happening at the ground level or the discussion being had rather at the ground level? about why anyone would want to attack their own people? To stay in power. Um, though I would say mainly it's just to stay in power. The family, the Assad family, is, is ruling the country for so many years. They own the resources of the country. They live a good life. Um, they don't want to, I think their mentality is they don't want to share the country with anybody else. They just want to stay in power. I guess that's, I would say, um, the main reason coming from the Assad family. Um, and then on the other hand, there is the, um, the religious part of this um, conflict. Assad belongs to um, part of, they call themselves Muslims. Most Muslims don't actually believe that they're part of Islam. Um, the Alawites or Alawites. Mm -hmm. um, and there were small population in, in Syria. Um, they, in, in the entire Muslim community in Syria, they, they compose about 5% or 10%. Small. Um, unfortunately, I guess in the past, before um, Assad was in power or before um, his uh, party was in power, um, the, um, the leaders of the country or the rich people in the country that was in the 60s or in the 70s. I guess did not treat the Alois very well. Um, they used them, I guess, as slaves, some people say. I'm not 100% sure about how true that story is. Um, so part of um, um, empowering Assad um, as the, the Alois, why they empower Assad is because they feel like they got their, um, their revenge back from the, the rest of the Muslim population in Syria. Do you think that Assad thinks that he can either, I, I don't know, it seems like he's gone so far down this road that it seems irreparable. You can't wipe off the face of the earth all opposition. You're going to probably only create more enemies. And certainly if you devastate all of your infrastructure, you won't have any kingdom to rule anymore. Do you think it's a scenario where he's just willing to take everybody down with him, or exactly? And and when you look at um, at the at the first, uh, f well, it's still now actually, but look at the first few um, months of of the demonstrations when, where the Assad um, uh, uh, army or forces would um, fight against the demonstrators, um, they 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 would um, 
chant, either Assad stays or we burn down the entire country. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in, in, in Arabic, uh, um, if you don't mind me saying it, Assad or Nahraq al-Balad. So it's either Assad or we just burn down the entire country. So um, his supporters, his, their mentality is we either stay in, ba- in power or we just burn down everything with everyone. Do you think that among his, his supporters and those who are still very loyal to him, um, that there is still a fear element that is tied to not wanting to speak against the government? Or do you think that this is a genuine loyalty to Assad and to his? Some of them do, I believe. Some of them do have the genuine uh, genuine loyalty. Mainly, I would say, I think part of it is because they want to stay in power because he gives them um, authority to do whatever they want to do, right? Sure. So they can steal, they can kill, they can rape, they can do whatever. Um, um, uh, they're not worried about any consequences. That's part of it. That's the uh, um, staying in power. The other part of it is the religious um, ties as well. Like I said, uh, if you're uh, not all Alawis, I don't want to group them in in one uh, one group. But the sure. majority, unfortunately, um, do want them to stay in power because they believe this is their um, is section, and they want to stay in power over the Sunnis because the Sunnis did not treat them well in the past. Right, maybe afraid of what it would mean for. And if this and these take over, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, Mohammed, tell me about when you noticed the real shift happening. And you were here already. Were you in medical school? Yes, I was uh, was in residency. Mm -hmm. Um, I finished. I did my medical school um, back home. So oh, okay. part of so part of uh, remember there was that part of the, the story that I they I guess we did not talk about um, yeah. the incidents that happened. Yeah. When you asked me why do you think they want to stay in power, um, I was I was in medical school um, while you were still in Syria. Was while I was mm-hmm. yeah exactly in Syria and um, I remember so where I did my medical school was um, in an Alawis majority area um, and um, when. Sometime I just mentioned something about the government. Um, talk, I talked about Bashar um, and his political opinion and political act in Lebanon. Back in, I think it was 2006, 2005, don't exactly remember. I was a fourth-year medical student. Uh, Syrian army was, uh, did, did exist in Lebanon. And I personally didn't think it was a good idea. So I just said, that's exactly what I just said. I said, I don't think it's a good idea that we stay in Lebanon or army. And I was reported uh, right away um, by my friends, quote unquote. We were in the cafeteria just talking. Wow. And I did not actually say anything bad. It just expressed my opinion about our army and uh, what our army is doing in, in Lebanon. That same night, I was arrested. And we wow. stayed... We stayed. I was blindfolded, handcuffed, and stayed there for um, at least two days. Um, and uh, we were slapped in our faces. We were um, naked, and um, and we um, signed papers that we were never participating in any political activity. And just just as simple as that. So see, they and so it, it's funny. So just saying something kind of offhand to some friends. Exactly, yeah. and I was supported, I guess, by one of my friends, quote unquote. Right. right. Um, the things that um, if you report someone uh, back home, um, it's something good for the government. So you get you get benefits. Um, you get connected more to the government. You they give you some power. Um, and when they, you're in a region of poor people. 
you have desperate times call for desperate measures type of thing too, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, that too as well. So they spread fear, right? They don't want you to talk about anything because you are worried all the time somebody might actually report you, even if it could be the closest person to you. And they ask you what questions. When I was in prison, they uh, just to spread the fear, they were asking me who, what organization you work with, where you get your financial support from, uh, how many people are you recruiting? Uh, where do you keep your weapons? Just big questions to just make you fear about committing even the simplest act of just expressing your opinion. Right. They want to tie you to something very big. So um, in a way, you, they, would make, they want to make you feel that it, it really is a big thing and it's really a serious and critical um, step if I even think about it criticizing the government. How long were you in the, the holding cell for? Uh, about 36 hours. And did they ever explain to you why they had detained you, or was it all just completely shrouded in mystery? Oh, eventually, yes. Eventually they told me, you've, you've said so-and-so, um, I want you not to talk about politics at all. How did they How did they arrest you? Did they come to your house? Yes, my apartment. So they broke in um, the apartment. It was in the evening. Um, and they uh, were looking for whatever evidence, I guess, they were looking for. Um, they searched my computer. They searched my books. They searched the entire apartment. Uh, how, uh, it's hard for me to imagine. Um, so when they when they come into your apartment and they're talking to you or yelling at you, I don't I don't know how polite it was in the time. What was what was going through your mind, or even when you were blindfolded and nude in a in a, in a jail cell? Um, are you are you thinking? I have no idea when I'm going to get out of here. I or did you have confidence yeah. that yeah, it was going actually, to be a short no, duration? No, no, no. We actually thought in the beginning that this is this is it because based on what we were told from our parents that if you're arrested, that's it. When There's you say this is it, like you could be in prison forever, forever or that they kill you. They could kill you either way. They could, and they've done that before. It's yeah. not something that was uh, that it wouldn't be a surprise if that were that was the scenario. So were you surprised when they let you go then? Uh, well, actually, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was at, at, in the first few years when Assad Bashar um, took over, and he was spreading the word of that he's more relaxed than his dad. He brought internet to Syria. So he was trying to give that picture or that image of the open-minded, um, easygoing person. I want to modernize Syria and make it more modern and advanced country. So, um, uh, so I guess there was a, the the intelligent forces were um, kind of little bit starting to become a little bit loose mm-hmm. in situations like this. I assume if this were to happen when Assad, the father, was in power, I would have not gone. Would have not released from the prison. That is Mohammed, a local physician and native to Douma, Syria, speaking with senior producer Laura Weber Davis. Up next, in the conclusion of their conversation, Mohammed discusses the conditions that are faced by those who remain in his war-torn home country. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Earlier in the week, we heard the first part of a conversation that producer Laura Weber Davis had with Muhammad. 
who is a local physician who was born and raised in Douma, Syria. Muhammad has been in the United States for several years, but he saw a civil war brewing in Syria after the Arab Spring in 2011. Today, we pick up with Muhammad where we left off earlier in the week. He'd been arrested and held blindfolded and naked in a jail cell for casually mentioning to friends that he disagreed with decisions made by Bashar al-Assad's government. When you get out of prison and you go home, I'm sure you had some sort of gut check moments. Is that part of what led you to want to leave the country? Not necessarily. I I really love my country, um, uh, Duma and the entire country. Uh, the, one of the reasons, the, the main reason I wanted to come to the U.S. was because the specialty that I'm practicing here is extremely rare. In, even in the U.S., it's extremely rare. So going back, um, when I was making the decision of where to do my, my training and where uh, what to specialize in, I wanted to do this specialty because I wanted to finish and can go back and practice in Syria um, so I could help the, the community. Because there was no specialist, still is no specialist in my field um, back home. So that was my original goal. And then the best place to practice um, still is uh, uh, is the U.S. Uh, in, in, this, in my field. So that's why I wanted to come here. That's the main reason I wanted to come here. Do you imagine that you – do you still have the dream of going back one day and being able to practice there? Do you I, imagine that I that's possible? I would love to. Yeah, I would love to um, if I can. Yeah. So tell me about who's still in Syria and, and who you uh, – you know, are your parents your, – your father is gone. Is your mother still alive? My mom is, 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 is still there. Um, my, I have four siblings, two mm-hmm. brothers and two sisters. Three of my uh, siblings are – Back home in Syria, uh, and the fourth one, um, uh, my my other brother is in Dubai. And you still have friends, I'm imagining, a yes, lot, quite a few cousins, friends. Cousins, uh, the entire family, the majority of the family is still back home, and m- most of my friends are still back home. So, how has contact been with them since a lot of this fighting has really rained down in the region? Uh, well, it's hard. Uh, power is not available all the time. Um, now, if you're talking about so my parent, my mom and my siblings are not in Duma anymore. Um, at the beginning of the conflict, when things started to heat up um, and it was becoming very unsafe in in Duma, um, my family left Duma and moved out to a to Damascus. Mm. They live in Damascus now. That must make you feel a little bit better, anyway, knowing that relatively not, yes. Yeah. Uh, although there are challenges if you are from Duma and you live in Damascus, there are certain challenges. Because they could stop you at checkpoints, military checkpoints, and they know you're from Duma, then you could get in trouble just by being from Duma. Mm. Simple as that. But the re- so yeah, so back to the, your question. Um, when they were in Duma, it was really hard because every time there was a demonstration, the uh, the government would just shut down uh, cellular um, cell phone signals mm. and shut down power as well, so people won't communicate and gather. Uh, and make it look like it's a big demonstration. So I would always be nervous. I would always be scared of what could happen to my family. And sometimes two or three days, you hear nothing about anyone. Mm. Um, so that was a, a big challenge. Um, now that are in, the, in Damascus, they do have power most of the time. So we communicate um, with my my mom and my siblings. My cousins and some of my friends that are in Duma, it's still hard um, to communicate with um, uh, maybe once or twice a, a week um, in general. What is life like for them? Are they 
I, I don't know how concentrated some of these attacks have been, whether they're relegated to specific neighborhoods or they're sort of citywide. So are they in pockets where they know it's relatively safe or do they sort of live with this constant thought of, well, I'm sure they hear shelling in the distance no matter mm. where they are, mm. but do they live in this kind of constant state of, is my neighborhood going to be next? Well, they're in Guta. So Guta, when I, when I remember when I talk, when I talk about rural areas, yeah. rural areas are called Guta. Is that, okay, that's so the surrounding word, rural the surrounding, areas. Exactly, uh-huh. uh, surrounding Damascus. It's all the farms and... Uh, um, um, Less concentrated. Yes, uh-huh. but there are big pockets. The largest is Duma. There are other pockets as well. They're a little, relatively smaller than Duma. Um, there's no safe place in Ghouta. There is no safe place because the bombing and the shelling is just everywhere. And they unfortunately target areas that are concentrated, so they unfortunately could kill more people or a larger amount of people. It's hard for me to imagine. How, do, how, do you, how does one continue about a normal state of life? Do they go to work? Do they just, you know, do they go to the market? Every, obviously, everybody has to eat. What is, yeah. like, what is a daily existence yeah. like when you're sort of in the middle of this warring? Um, in the first few months' life, um, so there were a few st- there were different steps um, uh, throughout the um, uh, the war, if you will. In the beginning, um, there was no bes- there was no siege around the Guta area or around Duma area. So there was some army, uh, the U- uh, the the Syrian army inside Duma um, in major streets that were mainly just military checkpoints. So life would continue, and there was some fighting with the military points. And there were snipers in areas, um, and um, and there would be shooting on just random people in the street. So that was the first stage, and then people couldn't take it anymore. And by the way, just before we talk about the fighting, the way it started, and that was in March 2011, um, it was a, a peaceful demonstration. Um, it was my first visit to Syria after I started residency. Hmm. Um, and I still remember um, there was so Duma. I think was the second city after Dara. So Dara was the first city that started the With whole demonstrations. Ent- ent- yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you already know the story. It was a few kids in Dara, in 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 middle school, I believe, or primary school. They wrote on the wall of their school. They wrote freedom. That's all that they wrote. I don't recall exactly. That's been seven or eight years ago. Um, they may also wrote. Uh, uh, may have written. Um, down Assad. I don't think they were doing it because they were trying to demonstrate, but that that era was around the time. Right. And also, it was around the time where the Arabic Spring is, right? There was right. Egypt, there was Tunisia, and people were um, raising against the... Um, the, uh, the um, Establishments. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, so they did, and the, the government arrested the kids, hmm. and they pulled out their nails as a oh torture. God. So people couldn't take it. That was very offensive. And people in Dara just rose against the government. It was a peaceful demonstration. And the government started shooting on peaceful demonstrators. Um, so the second city was Duma. Um, and I remember with um, uh, my, I, I was with my family just grilling in a picnic. And my friend called and said, hey, listen, tomorrow we're going um, on a demonstration. People were talking about it. It was a Friday. And he was, he, he was talking about like how most people are going on a demonstration, um, a peaceful demonstration, of course. Um, and um, he said, 
don't ever think about going or joining us. You're a physician. You have your own mission. You stay with your family. You go back to your practice. Uh, when you come back, I promise you by the time you come back, we'll have our country back. Mm. And um, and I, I remember we prayed, for, probably know the Friday prayer is the largest prayer in a week. Right. Most people go attend the Friday prayer. Um, it's like Sunday here um, in the U.S., the, 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 um, um, the church yeah. prayer on Sunday. So so, uh, so uh, they used to do the demonstrations right after Friday prayer because that's where most people are going to, to pray anyway. So it would be easier to gather people. And I still remember um, I, I didn't really join the demonstration, but I, I was part of it on the side. And then I went home. And you could hear the shooting. You could see the Syrian army around the major mosques, around the doors of the major mosques, surrounding the doors of major mosques. Mm-hmm. People would gather and just chant freedom, simply freedom, and didn't even say anything about bringing down the regime or bringing down Assad. They were just asking for freedom. And you hear that how the, um, the army was just shooting on innocent people. They killed 11 innocent people that day on Friday. Um, and things then started to escalate. I, they started, they, they continued to be peaceful for about six months. So they did just demonstrate. So what would happen? They would go on a demonstration. The army would kill innocent people. Then um, in a few days, they would go to their, um, what do you guys call it here? Um, when somebody dies and you go to their... Um, Wake like a visitation? The visitation. Mm-hmm. But they would do it in the mosque. So most of the people would just go attend there, and there would be another demonstration for that. Um, and then the week after, there would go another demonstration, they would, and then the army would shoot another other innocent people and would go on and so on and so forth. Eventually, there was a lot of demonstration in Duma, so the government couldn't take it anymore. So they kind of invaded the city with their army, and they set um, checkpoints, and they put snipers on main buildings so they would um, separate people from gathering. Mm. And the snipers would kill innocent people. It, it, you see videos and you hear stories. Um, people just driving uh, on their cars, um, moving from one place to another, going to the grocery store, buying and stuff, and they would just get shot by the sniper. They shoot kids, they shoot, they shoot older people, they shoot women, they, shoot, they, don't, they don't really care, they just shoot anyone. Um, just There's to spread the fear. There's an intention of uh, stoking enough fear to send people back into their houses, exactly. essentially. Exactly. You just want to shut it down. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how they thought they could shut it down. So that, that's when, to answer your question, that's when life started to become a little bit of a challenge. People would, do, would go to their work, but they would avoid areas where the snipers would shoot innocent people. Um, they would avoid areas where the uh, army checkpoints are. Uh, but that continued, and the army would spread more and more um, to a point that eventually what happened is that you've heard about the Syrian Free Army, mm-hmm. right? That's when part of the Syrian army, the government army, couldn't take it anymore. They're like, this is crazy. We're just shooting our own people. So they would split off the government army or the Syrian army and join the people, the demonstrator, just to protect them. Right. So when the Syrian army shoots, the other the the uh, the, the, um, the soldiers that are sp- they already spit off, they would shoot back again, right. and, and that's when the I guess the fighting started. The um, dug in. Uh, that's when yeah, when the demonstration started to become armed. 
um, with time. And eventually, um, they were um, at some point just able to kick out the Syrian regime or the Syrian army out of the Duma area and then eventually out of the Ghouta area. And that's when the bombing and the shelling and all that started. Mm. So you put yourself in a situation when you talk to my family, talk to my friends um, and ask them, why don't you just leave? First of all, it was a besieged. It is a besieged area. Um, there is no way you could leave. There are tunnels that you could try to leave in tunnels, but it's very risky because you could still be captured and killed on the scene right away. Um, so it's hard. It's not easy. And it costs a lot of money to, to, to use the tunnel to escape. Um, so it's very expensive. It's not safe. Um, so you're stuck. And if you're stuck in a situation like this... And then where do you go if you can't get out? Exactly. You have to live. You have to figure out a way to live. Um, It is crazy. I was talking on a a phone uh, one day with one of my friends, um, and you could hear the bomb just maybe like a block away. And and the conversation continued. He he didn't freak out. He was like, yeah, this is is life. And, and and this could have killed a few people. This could have killed maybe his family. This could have killed someone he he might have known. But that was life. It's just it's just their daily daily activities. Unfortunately, that was part of their lives. So, Mohammed, I guess lastly, I want to ask you about sort of putting on both the hat of like your hopes and dreams, but also your pragmatic doctor hat, <laughs> like. What do you think is both perhaps a, a, a reasonable dream to have about where you'd like to see Syria in five or ten years? Or do you envision that what you'd like for Syria is farther out than that? A place where you can return and feel like you could have a reasonable and good life and be reunited with your family. Unfortunately, I don't see that coming at all. Not in my, <clears throat> not in my lifetime. If you look at um, the entire region, you see how Iran and um, Hezbollah are expanding. Um, a few years ago, um, uh, Iraq was, although it was a dictator, there's no question about that. But look at look at it now. It's it's mainly controlled by by the Shiites and by Iran. Lebanon is controlled by Iran in a way, and now is Syria. They're expanding. Iran is expanding with support of Russia. Um, I, I don't, unfortunately, with the lack of how the international community re- is reacting to, to the Syrian people and how the lack of support is obvious, I don't see anything changing in the future. I, I don't even see that happening in my, in my lifetime. That's all for today. We will see you tomorrow on Detroit Today.